5,541 entrants in this year's games, a near record. As the host nation, the Japanese enter last. The Japanese have spent $2 billion to welcome their guests, and not a taxpayer has complained out loud. Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the economy to you. 57 years ago, Japan was bursting with pride to be hosting the Olympic Games. Now 80% of the country wants them to go away. But the government can't bear the thought of cancelling because it feels like an admission that they haven't beaten COVID-19. This week, our Tokyo-based economy reporter Yuko Takeo has a great piece for you delving into the economics and the politics of Tokyo 2021. Later on, I'll be asking our France economy reporter, Will Horobin, about that landmark agreement which the G7 countries have supposedly reached to extract more tax, supposedly, out of big multinationals. And at the end, I'm also going to play you part of a conversation about the work-from-home revolution with Stanford University professor Nicholas Bloom. He says it could worsen inequality in the workplace, even as it also makes downtown apartments a bit more affordable. So plenty to come, but first... Let's go to Tokyo. This is a sound that the International Olympic Committee wants you to hear over and over again. It's the theme music that will play when athletes at the Tokyo Olympics pick up their medals if the games go ahead. I feel I can already hear the footsteps of athletes making their way to Tokyo from overseas. There are people asking why we're holding the Olympic and Paralympic Games at a time like this. But I believe it's precisely because we're in these difficult times that we should hold the games. That's Japan's Olympic minister, Seiko Hashimoto, who herself has competed in seven games, first as a speed skater, then as a cyclist. I was listening to her speak in Ariake Arena in Tokyo Bay, one of eight gleaming new venues built for the games. She was there for the unveiling of the award ceremony anthem, the medals podium and the medals tray, each item demonstrating Japan's tireless attention to detail and its government's dogged determination to press ahead with the games, come what may. It wasn't meant to be this way. The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of As it was in 1964, when the first Tokyo Olympics became a springboard for Japan's emergence as a major manufacturing power, the 2020 Games were expected to give the economy a helping hand. A country battered by a massive earthquake, tsunami and nuclear disaster would use the event to drive its recovery. The Olympics would also help the country attract 40 million visitors per year. That inbound tourism would help sustain shops, 
hotels and travel throughout Japan, while giving the regions a boost as they struggle with the effects of a declining and aging population. Jun Saito, an economist at the Japan Center for Economic Research, believes that Japan needs to attract more foreigners over the longer term, both for the tourism sector and to make up for labor shortages in a declining, graying population. Trying to boost the economy by linking the goal of 40 million visitors to the Olympics wasn't at all unreasonable looking at the momentum before the pandemic. All of this is connected with what kind of legacy you're looking to get from the Olympics. Still, the 2020 Games were never expected to compete with the economic punching power of the 1964 Olympics. Those Games marked Japan's return to the international stage from the destruction of a world war. A massive spending blitz built key parts of the capital's infrastructure, including its bullet trains and the elevated highways that give Tokyo its Blade Runner look. That ambitious national project also got Japan hooked on the concept of the debt financing government bond. In the decades since then, that addiction has left the country with the developed world's heaviest public debt load. That's weightlifter Yoshinobu Miyake setting a new world record to fend off US challenger Isaac Berger and win Japan's first gold medal at the 1964 Games. Now a sprightly 81-year-old, Miyake recalls the mood, hinting that the public may still rally round in support of the Games. In 1945, Japan lost the war and it was trying to recover. The Olympics came along in 1964 and everyone was intent on making it a success. It wasn't quite like that at first, but as the Olympic came closer and closer, everyone started flying the Olympic colors. By the time the games started, the entire country was wrapped up in it. Today, Miyake coaches the Tokyo International University weightlifting team. When I enter the training room with him, dozens of young men and women line up to offer greetings of respect to the Olympic legend. The aroma of sweat and toil fills the air. As the students return to training, my ears are pounded by their cries and shouts and the sound of multicolored weights crashing into the ground. Among those pumping iron is 24-year-old Masakiro Miyamoto. He is one member of the team who's highly likely to qualify for the Olympics this year, but he's feeling uneasy over the fate of the Games. I've been thinking about the Olympics as long as I've been involved in sport, and I've always wanted to be a part of it. If the Games get cancelled now, then everything I've dedicated myself to will have been for nothing. It's not only some athletes who are hoping the Games will go ahead. 
for Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga, staging the Olympics could be a prerequisite for holding on to the pattern as Japan's leader. Yuji Shizaka, an academic at Nara Women's University, has spent his career researching the Olympics. He says that for Japan's leaders, there's no political upside from a cancellation, even with public opinion against holding the Games, because a scrapped Olympics would symbolize the government's failure to contain COVID-19. Staging the Olympics is tantamount to having the virus under control. Together with getting the vaccines distributed faster, this could end up being a plus point for the administration. Holding the Olympics has in a sense become a lifeline for the government, and that's why they can't cancel. Ditching the games would also be bad for an economy that's already teetering on the brink of a double-dip recession under emergency restrictions. But staging the games comes with obvious risks too. Bringing 78,000 people to Japan from around the world could turn the games into a super-spreader event. That could have a greater cost for the economy, in addition to the human consequences. One reason why many corporate leaders have joined medical professionals in calling for a cancellation. With little more than six weeks to go, the national consensus in favour of the Games lies in pieces, shattered by the pandemic. Even Miyake, a gold medal hero from 1964, acknowledges that a late surge of support has yet to arrive. You can't really compare how people feel, but the people of Japan, our citizens, even my friends, aren't really in the Olympic mood yet. I do sense that. Tokyo to Kokyo Gakudan, Sosta Tokyo Kunsega Shodan, the Vinasama, Ishiki, Fujioka, Satio san, Subarashi, so. Now, there's a nerdy topic which we've come back to a few times on this podcast uh, that actually made it to primetime news this weekend when G7 finance ministers agreed on a deal to charge a global minimum tax on the profits of big companies. So I think it's it's only fair we get the lowdown on this from Bloomberg's France economy reporter, William Horobin, who's been dutifully following this story from the beginning. Um, Will I know we have, we have a few other things to talk about today, but let me ask you about all the, the headlines that we saw at the weekend, uh, 15% tax on, on the, these big global companies. D- does that mean that companies like Google uh, aren't going to be able to do all these kind of fancy avoidance operations anymore and end up paying no tax anywhere? I guess the short answer is, is yes. Um, they're not going to be able to. <laughs> they're, they're not going to be able to do those things anymore. Um, but what was really significant about what happened at the G7 was in some ways more political than technical. There is, there's some detail in the, in the final communique that they've put down on paper. Um, but what it actually happened is that they've resolved a major divide between Europe and the US on who gets to tax the multinationals, how do we share out the spoils of globalization, if you like. Um, and if you remember that, that Trump always used to say his stance was America... Um, America taxes its companies, not anyone else. And Europe's response was like, hang on a second, these are huge, they have huge operations in our country, they rely on our infrastructure, our people, 
um, but they're not paying any tax here. And, and we want a slice of that pie. So what happens at the G7 this weekend is that everyone sort of recognizes, okay, these multinationals, they need to pay more in the places where more of the tax that they do already pay in the places where they're actually doing business. Um, so the home countries, if say for Google, for the US, need to share out some of the rights to tax the profits of Google. And it's, it's worth pausing for a second there because what they have essentially agreed to is to let other governments tax their companies instead of them. And conceptually, even even materially, this may not be huge, but conceptually, that's a, that's a huge breakthrough. And for the purposes of these years-long um, negotiations that have been happening at the OECD, it's also key. You know, people at the OECD always said, we, we're doing all this technical work on lots of nitty-gritty of how to rewrite tax legislation around the world. But what really, what really has blocked us is this agreement on this willingness to share out rights to tax companies. And once that's resolved, they've always said the rest will just flow from that. On the face of it, it seems surprising that the US would be willing to give up that right. They've produced this big, these big successful global companies. Surely you want, if you're the US, you want to keep as many of those tax revenues to yourself as you can. Well, there's there's various elements to how to respond to that and why the US has shifted. The, the simplest way of putting it is that they've realised that if they want to get what they want, they've they've got to cooperate and we've got to have a system that is stable to some extent, rather than lots of people threatening each other with, with tariffs or putting in place um, taxes on the revenue of American companies all around the world. Um, so it's that sort of... It's, it's, this moment that you realize, you know, the, these countries, all countries around the world have perhaps have been competing on, on the basis of tax. And in some ways, you know, they, they've decided actually, it's probably in our interest if we become more of a cartel. And so then we can start getting what we want. And what the US really wants is the minimum tax part of this deal, so that companies are, are not sort of going off to tax havens. And um, that they can make sure that they pay their fair share, and that the U.S. isn't isn't losing tax revenues all around the world. And that's 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 that minimum tax part of the deal is really the is really the thing that rather than sharing out the pie differently, it's a question of making a much bigger pie for governments to be able to um, fund all the spending that they need to do in the wake of the COVID pandemic. And I noticed, I mean, we can't afford to spend too much time on this, but I noticed that there had been this sticking point and it had come up the last time I spoke to you around Amazon. You know, there's been a lot of focus on uh, which of the companies that will have this sort of sharing of, of revenues across countries was going to be just the big companies that have lots of profits. And Amazon, it's that frustrating thing that it, it, although it sells an enormous amount in every country, it seems to have quite a low profit margin. So what, what's going to happen specifically with Amazon? Well, yeah, as as you say, um, the Amazon it would be it would be sort of crazy to create a global tax system and then say, oh, by the way, um, Amazon isn't part of this. Um, it just wouldn't make any sense to people who are are pushing for such a a change of the system. So what what they've got to do is find a way, and they're still working on this, is find a way of hitting a target without aiming for it. So they've got to, they've got to score a goal. They can't actually call it, it an Amazon like. tax. <laughs> yeah, they can't call it an Amazon tax because otherwise that opens up all the problems about you know, taxing digital companies or targeting certain things. So they're, they're working on a way of, of sort of potentially chopping up conceptually 
Amazon operations so that they can find bits that are really profitable and say, right, we can share out some of that profit for taxing purposes. But it, it's, it's technically tricky because you open a can of worms that they thought they'd closed. We have these G7s. I always wondered why G7 still existed whilst they created the G20, because the G7 is quite a sort of old-fashioned group of countries. We've got the big, the heads of government summit coming in Cornwall this weekend. Uh, but when you look at the countries around the table, it's it's most of the sort of new world is not represented. Um, obviously, they can't just carve up all these tax revenues just for themselves. It's just not not a very good look. So how is this going to get sold? To the rest of the world, how are we gonna? How is it gonna get more sort of global buy-in? I think the 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 point we made right at the start that actually what's happened at the G7 they've resolved a disagreement between the US and Europe, and so once that's done, they in the rest of what is agreed at the G7 is actually leaves a considerable amount of margin for everyone else to start working on how to resolve, how to find solutions to, to their problems with this deal. The key really is that the G7 has lifted a problem that it had within itself. And so now we can get down to really working on all the exceedingly complicated issues that, that flow from well, this. Well, and, 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 and I noticed there's, I mean, that some of the issues that have to be resolved are pretty big, like how do you define profits? I mean, that seems to be... There'll be a lot of accountants waiting to hear how they're defined so that they can quickly find a way around it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the reassuring thing is that the OECD has been working on all these things for years, right? So they've they've got it all sort of lined up to go. And they, But it doesn't mean it's not complicated, but a lot of their work has already been done. And also there's a sort of, there's a bigger sort of global shift going on. And that is that actually everyone wants a deal. Even even the big tech firms, right? What they want is some kind of stable mechanism. They don't want to be hit by tariffs or or very unilateral um, punitive taxes in different countries. And they think they also recognise, and from from a more political perspective, um, all the governments realise that they have to make this work because they're at a point where they a they need to end the race at the bottom because they don't want to. They need the money. They need money to be able to invest in their economies. But also, they want to be able to sell the notion of globalization to the middle classes and 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 show that they are taking back power from from the winners of globalization and to do that they've got to they've got to make this work and keep the keep the accountants at bay if you like so i, I can't help thinking that we will be returning to you at some point in the next few months for the next exciting installment of the definition of global profit for the corporate minimum tax but it is actually as you suggest there's a lot of money involved it's quite an important point of principle about whether you can make the global economy um, work work better. Will Horobin, thank you very much. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks. Now, if we think of all the changes caused by the pandemic, one that does seem to be here to stay is working from home. Companies such as Vanguard Group and Ford Motor Company are permanently adopting what they call hybrid work schedules. Employees spend some of the week at home and the rest at an office. But what's it going to mean for the rest of the economy? Well, Stanford University economist Nicholas Bloom has been researching the impact of remote working for years. So since Covid hit, he's become the go-to expert on working from home. He's also co-director of the Productivity, Innovation and Entrepreneurship Programme at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And he's spent the last year surveying tens of thousands of US firms and employees 
asking them about their post-pandemic work arrangements. US economy reporter Olivia Rockman went to talk to Bloom about the results of that survey and a working paper he's just published, co-authored with his colleague Arjun Romani. It's pretty interesting stuff. Here's just a taste of their conversation. It looks like the suburbs of large cities are the hottest property markets. It's kind of odd that central New York has done really badly, but the suburbs of New York have done incredibly well. And then places further away still, like if you go to, you know, very, very upstate New York, or I'm thinking like Topeka, Kansas, or, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Hawaii, or, you know, uh, Mississippi or Alaska have done fine because the whole U.S. housing market is up. It's not like they've exploded. So we think of this as all due to the move to hybrid. So the vast majority, you know, kind of 70 to 80% of firms I talk to now, and you see it in all the survey data, are moving to hybrid, whereby basically most big American firms are telling people, post-pandemic, when you come back, you're going to be coming back probably three days a week, typically. Mm-hmm. And if you can work from home two days a week, it makes it more appealing to live out in the suburbs. But it should be clear that this is only half of people. So half of people, typically university grads, so it's going to go hybrid. The other half are still you know, on the business premises every day because they're doing more physical manual jobs than meeting customers, etc. The the richer, educated half are mostly the people buying houses. So that's why that's really impactful for um, real estate. These folks are moving out. The question as to what the long and impact will be, I, I personally think it's actually maybe positive. It's not, it's certainly not obviously negative. So To put it in context, the center of American cities have had a 40-year boom. So from about 1980 to 2019, they've been on a continuous upward swing. And so what's happened is COVID has probably unwound maybe 10 to 20 years of that, but probably no more. So you can think of city centers relatively going to be the price they were, say, in 2005, 2010, which is expensive, but that gap has narrowed a little bit. As an economist... It's pretty clear the adjustment is going to be on many margin. Maybe some bohemians, maybe more artists will come back yeah. into city centers, folks that are driven out. In fact, maybe people that need to work uh, on the business premises five days a week that were priced out, but are actually the very people that should be living in the city centers for return. There was a mention in one of your papers about um, promotions, and I wonder how some of this ends up you know, making it harder for some people to, to move up, especially, let's say, if there's a parent that decides to work from home five days a week in the long yeah, term, so you know. I, I think, you know, what, so there's this kind of two managerial decisions. One is what to do post-pandemic. And I, I would say most firms have gone hybrid, and that seems like yesterday's decision, quite frankly. So, sure, but then the big issue is on choice. And do you set the thing right at the top of the firm? Or do you set it right at the bottom and let people choose? I've been against setting at the bottom because I think choice is actually problematic for three reasons. Uh, the first two are quick and kind of obvious. One is mixed mode doesn't work very well. So when some people are in the office and some are at home, it just leads to a kind of in and out group. So even if everyone in the office joins meetings you know, on their own Zoom screen, you know as soon as the meeting's over, they get up and go chat. So if people at home feel left out, and that's almost impossible to deal mm. with. There's a second issue about if you let people choose, 18% of people say that of their two days they work at home, it will be a Wednesday, and 63% say it will be a Friday. So if you let people choose, you're going to find the office crushed on a Wednesday and empty. on a, It's like tumbleweed blowing through on a Friday. So it's very inefficient in office space. 
And then the final reason that I'm against choice is the one you raise, which is the most subtle, but it's maybe the most pernicious, which is they're kind of the two facts worth knowing. One is who, who would choose to work from home? In our survey, we asked people, what would you, how many days a week would you like to work from home post-pandemic? And if you look at uh, amongst college graduates, which is about a bit over half of our other workforce, and you look at people with children under the age of 12, almost 50% more women than men choose to work from home five days a week. And, you know, that, so already amongst graduates with young kids, there's a big gender divide as to who would choose to work from home five days a week. You, you hear it for dis- people that are disabled, people that are living far out, etc. There are groups mm-hmm. of people who, given the choice, would choose, you know, for quite very logical and sensible reasons to work from home more days. So that seems totally sensible. The problem is the second fact is if you look in the data and working from home in a team where there are other people coming into the office is extremely costly in promotion. So if you let people choose, my fear is in some ways the biggest cost in the long run, we all the single young men come in five days a week, mm-hmm. college educated women with a six year old and an eight year old maybe come in two days a week and six, seven years down the road, there's a huge difference in promotion rates and you, know, you have a diversity crisis. And honestly, for companies, you have it like a legal minefield of quite justifiable lawsuits. I mean, you know, you would look at the data and you'd see, lo and behold, you've got a, a gender divide in promotion, a disability divide in promotion, maybe an income divide because wealthier people live near, you know, stuff that's just a nightmare for companies. So I have been advising that firms should probably harmonize across the firm how many days people work from home and try and harmonize which days it is in each team. In terms of, you know, people's sacrifices that they're willing to make for flexibility, did you, did you survey anyone about that? Like, oh, I would be willing to take a pay cut for a hybrid model? Or... Yeah, so, so we, we've, we have really good data on this. So we survey people, uh, post-pandemic, if you were allowed to work from home two days a week, would that would you be positive, neutral, negative? Then if you're either positive or negative, we ask how much would that be equivalent to in terms of your current salary? And you take the average across everyone and you get plus 7%. And I've done the same survey in the UK, actually, so it came out there 6%. So basically, people value being able to work from home for two days a week at something like 6 to 8% of salary. So you can think of it as equivalent probably to a pension plan or a kind of a mean healthcare plan. That raises why this is a bit of an inequality issue. Another management challenge right. is only half your employees get this and the other half don't. And the half that get this are typically the higher earning, better educated half that mostly have had a better pandemic because they've worked from home for half year. Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. I'll be back next week with a lot more from around the world. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and the segment on the Tokyo Olympics was written by Yuko Takeo and edited by Paul Jackson in Tokyo. Special thanks also to William Horobin, Olivia Rockman and Professor Nicholas Blue. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. 